Hello, and welcome to Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, part one of the incredible story of how the French came to the rescue of American patriots during the Revolutionary War against the British, marching 680 miles from Rhode Island to Virginia on the Rochambeau Trail to do it. It's a spellbinding story with many local highlights, and here to help tell this incredible story are none other than Dr. Bob Selig, the foremost expert on the Rochambeau March and the Revolutionary War. Also, John Dwyer, town historian for Southbury, Connecticut, who's well-versed on Rochambeau's march in that area. And now, part one of A Trail Like No Other, It Brought Us Freedom. There have been a number of military campaigns throughout the history of mankind that were legendary in their scope and outcome. Campaigns that have literally shaped the course of time and history. Well, this is a story of one such campaign. A 680-mile march from Newport, Rhode Island to Yorktown, Virginia in 1781, where the final major combat activity of the Revolutionary War took place. And yes, it brought freedom to the United States. But to understand the significance of this campaign, a brief historical background for context is required. When European settlers came to North America in the 16 and 1700s, they weren't just the pilgrims from England seeking religious freedom in a new land. They also came from Spain, setting up mostly in the South, Florida, Louisiana, and from France, largely occupying Canada and the Great Lakes region. The British, of course, laid claim to the 13 colonies of what would later become the United States of America. Well, these early historical days weren't really so much about American history. They were really an extension of European history. Americans were actually British subjects. Yes, a political split developed amongst them, and some wanted to remain part of the British Empire, and the others were not wanting to follow England's rules anymore. They were the revolutionary patriots, while the Loyalists, or Tories, were wanting to stay with the Empire. Well, you've heard numerous times about that political struggle. It is the mainstay of the teaching of early American history. The Patriots were angry that they were being taxed without having any vote or political representation back in England. And this led to skirmishes and protests such as the Boston Tea Party, where Patriots threw expensive tea overboard in Boston Harbor, ruining its tax value. Again, though, to get the full picture, you have to turn back the clock 20 years to a different war back in the 1750s. See, the French and British have been rivals for centuries. They routinely fought each other in Europe. And now in North America, the French had Canada and the British had their colonies. They were separated mainly by the Ohio River. And yes, they had regular skirmishes, just like back in Europe. The British governor in Virginia decided to send an envoy to the French with a message. Do not even think about attacking the area where Pittsburgh is today. Well, the envoy's message was not well received and he had to retreat with his men. He knew the French would follow, so he quickly had his men build Fort Necessity to protect them. Well, the French did pursue the envoy and they overran the forts. The man leading the British team who had to surrender the fort was someone you've heard of before, George Washington. George Washington fighting for the British? Well, this was 1754, 20 full years before the signing of the Declaration of Independence. 
The revolutionary patriots hadn't really yet begun to form. The skirmishes between the British and the French didn't end. In fact, they got so bad that two years after that envoy incident, England formally declared war on France. The war wasn't fought just in North America, though, between the British colonies and French Canada. It took place in Europe as well. And you've heard of this war, the French and Indian War. That's because it took seven years to complete, and Native Americans were involved, some tribes backing the British, others siding with the French. Well, on this side of the Atlantic, the French were winning the war. In Europe, however, the British made a masterstroke move that was so effective, it tipped the scales in their favor. You see, the German-Prussians were also fighting in this war in Europe on Britain's side. The British invested more heavily in the Prussian army, raising troop strength to the point that the French were hopelessly outnumbered. The French had to take their focus off of North America and concentrate on Europe, and in the end, they lost on both fronts. Well, to the victors go the spoils, don't they say? And with their win, England not only had the 13 colonies, but they also got in the surrender both Canada as well as Louisiana and Florida from Spain. Now, with this background, you can begin to more fully appreciate the story of the Rochambeau Trail and the military campaign that went along with it. As we said, France and England, it seemed, were routinely fighting each other. And even though this French and Indian War was over, both sides knew the next one would be coming someday. Meantime, the Patriots' revolutionary movement was starting to take shape and boil up. It was the 1770s, a noisy decade. 1773, the Boston Tea Party. 1775, the start of the war for independence with the shot heard around the world, fired at Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts. 1776, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Well, the French were watching these developments and the fracturing between the British loyalists and the revolutionary patriots with keen interest. After the Declaration of Independence was signed, France formally recognized the U.S. as an independent nation. That meant they were putting their money on the patriots. And in fact, they put their money where their mouth was. They sent 100,000 muskets, 50 cannons, shoes, gunpowder, and ammunition. Well, despite this, the war was not going well for the patriots. Revolutionary War expert Dr. Bob Selig says that after five years of fighting without success... The Patriots now turned to the French for direct military assistance. And the person who sent the formal letter was none other than the same envoy who had delivered a message to the French two decades earlier to not invade the Pittsburgh area, George Washington. He writes this letter that we're at the end of our tether and uh, deliverance has now to come. France agreed to send 5,000 troops to help out the Patriots. Bob says, though, there was more to their decision than just being a nice guy. The reasons why uh, Rochambeau and French forces come to the United States in the summer of 1780 have uh, really nothing to do with the fact that the king of France suddenly believes that all men are created equal. In fact, the French figured that if they supported the patriots then, It'd pay off later when they could be allies in France's ongoing struggles against England. To a certain degree, France was afraid that if the United States would drop out of the war and uh, be defeated, that she would have to face the wrath of Great Britain all by herself. Plus, it was clear that something was needed to turn the tide. I think both sides knew was kind of the last 
chance for this uh, rebellion, this independence movement to succeed. So the French excursion across the Atlantic landed in Newport, Rhode Island in the summer of 1780. Well, on board were the 5,000 troops under the command of Jean-Baptiste Donatine Duvaymore, Count of Rochambeau, and his primary subordinate officer, Lausanne. But Bob says the arrival timing was not optimal, coming just before the upcoming fall and winter seasons. Unfortunately, a little too late uh, to still uh, embark on a campaign. In 1780, a lot of the soldiers are sick after over 100 days uh, on the transport. The French under Rochambeau and the Patriots under Washington still had to coordinate their strategy for fighting the British, so it was decided to use this downtime to review some options in Connecticut's main inland city. In 1780, we only get uh, the meeting at Hartford between Washington and Rochambeau, and then French forces go into winter quarters in uh, Newport, and Lausanne's Legion goes into winter quarters in Lebanon in Connecticut. The strategy was clear, retake New York City. The city had been under Patriot control when the Declaration of Independence was signed, but the British then managed to push Washington and his troops out later that same year. The British had also set up their own operational headquarters in New York. It's the center of British military and political power. It's also a place that you know, Washington had been thrown out rather ignominiously in 1776. This meant that Rochambeau's 5,000 troops in Rhode Island now had to march across Connecticut. They would join with Washington's troops in Greenberg, New York, in Westchester County. In the meantime, there was a lot to do in terms of logistics, feeding the soldiers, getting and tending to the animals, identifying the right bridges to cross those challenging rivers. For starters, the French split their forces and had them march separate routes through Connecticut, so neither could be wiped out by the British in one engagement. 85% of the troops would take the northern route with Rochambeau, and 15% would go with Lausanne on the southern route. Both routes were designed to steer clear of Long Island Sound, where the superior British fleet could pose substantial problems. Now the French brought the most modern available weaponry with them. They did not, however, bring their own livestock. They needed hundreds of horses and mules, and they had to buy these creatures from supply sources near and far. These animals come you know, from all over Connecticut because you know, the farms are small. They don't have that much uh, surplus. At times, the French had to get their horses from as far away as Maryland and Pennsylvania. And Bob says there was always a hitch with these purchases. Rochambeau needs to get American cattle drivers and wagoners, etc., because you know, Rhode Island horses do not understand French commands. These horses and mules also needed to eat grass, hay, and food, and they needed to relieve themselves. 15,000 horses produced 3,600 gallons of urine every day and tons of manure as well. All of these animals who are in these columns leave things behind. And I know where I would like to march in that column, which is not in the back. Animals, of course, were good for more than transportation. They provided a critical source of food. In those days, the average cow weighed 600 pounds. That means they yielded 400 pounds of eatable meat per animal. To feed 5,000 French troops for the entire winter, well, that was going to mean a lot of beef. 
There's also the French Navy, the French fleet that's off the coast of Newport with uh, something like 10,000 sailors who also are dependent on supplies. And to put that into some context. There are more than you know, probably close to 15,000 people that need to be supplied at a time when Newport, for example, has uh, what five or 6,000 inhabitants. Supplying campsites was also an enormous undertaking. They were literally hundreds of feet long and hundreds of feet wide. We don't just have the tents, we also need the cattle pens, we need places for the wagons, we need latrines, we need all kinds of things. The troops were also a colossal drain on the region's corn supply, with a huge number of acres required to meet demand. Corn in Rhode Island and in Connecticut yielded maybe five, six, seven bushels uh, you know, per acre. Today, it's 200. Potatoes required seven times as much acreage back then as would be needed today to feed the 15,000 French Army and Navy personnel. John Dwyer is the town historian for Southbury, Connecticut. He says that Connecticut is not widely known for its beef production today, but during the Revolutionary War, it was. There was an expression at the time. Um, they would call it Western Connecticut beef. And, Western, and the beef from Western Connecticut came mostly from Litchfield County. And that was like saying Virginia ham. And that was one of the biggest trade items. Um, and when you look at the amount of, of meat, beef and pork, um, that Connecticut gave to uh, supplied, it was like two or three times that of some of the other states. Connecticut was known as the provision state for all of the supplies it delivered to the troops many of them coming from Litchfield County. You wouldn't have known it was the breadbasket of the American Revolution if you looked at it today. But that's why there's all those stone walls out in the middle of the woods, because <laughs> it used to keep herds. And in a little-known fact about Connecticut's beef supply back then, it was a salted beef brined in barrels. It's an early version of what today we would call beef jerky, or dried beef. Well, it lasts longer than fresh beef. John says General Washington himself was concerned about this when wintering with his troops at Valley Forge. He wrote to Congress, he said, send me no more fresh beef in Valley Forge because I can't take any more casualties. Because fresh beef uh, wasn't too fresh by the time it got to you or wasn't too fresh by the time you got to eat it. And John says Washington let it be known to Connecticut's governor that it was his beef of choice. Your Western Connecticut beef saved my army at Valley Forge because it might have been salty and maybe it wasn't good for blood pressure, but at least you wouldn't die from salmonella or botulism. Bob Selig says a French officer actually complained in his diary about the cost of helping the Americans fight their own war. He says that the Americans supplied us with nothing. We're obliged to purchase everything and to provide ourselves with the most trifling things. Bob says that Jeremiah Wadsworth of Bolton, Connecticut, was the chief supply officer for the Continental Army. So when the French arrived, he had all the necessary connections to supply them too. Which is one of the reasons why he is the wealthiest man in Connecticut once the war is over. The French, you see, paid with gold and silver. That meant that farmers and other suppliers put them right at the front of the line for selling their goods. And Wadsworth's associates also cashed in. He's purchasing agents, then 
swarm out over across Connecticut into Rhode Island, into Massachusetts, providing supplies for uh, French forces. John Dwyer says that one of Wadsworth's key operators worked in the Southbury area and had a way of safeguarding his precious pork supplies. There is a section of town in the woods called Pork Hollow, which is where Shadrach Osborne used to keep his, his barrels of pork where he thought the British wouldn't find it if they came to raid. Before the march began, there was a famous meeting between Rochambeau and Washington in Wethersfield, just south of Hartford. There, in 1781, they finalized the plan to attack New York City. That meant it was time then for Rochambeau's and Lausanne's troops to make their way finally from Rhode Island and eastern Connecticut, where they had been wintering, through Connecticut and into Westchester County. There they would meet up with Washington's troops and make the final preparations for the attack on New York. Many towns and cities along the Connecticut part of the march have a lot to brag about, but we're going to focus on Newtown. That's a town where Rochambeau's troops camped after camping in Middlebury and right before they camped in Ridgebury. It was also notable because, as Bob points out, the argument between Tories and Patriots in Newtown was quite pronounced. The Anglican Church in Newtown, which was essentially the same as the Episcopal Church in England and where all the Tories worshipped, was even pulled into the debate. Newtown is very divided. I mean, we know that Parson Beach, on at least one occasion, is shot at while he's preaching in church from the pulpit. And Newtown was the only place where the French troops ever faced a challenge on that route. There's the only uh, point on the whole march from Newport to Yorktown that the French encampment is actually fired at by two loyalists who did not wait then to be arrested. John Dwyer says it's a badge of honor of sorts to have your town even included in these discussions. Everybody wants to contribute to a major, you know, the defining moment of your your country, the Revolutionary War. And of course, everybody wants to be a patriot, so everybody wants a piece of that. So just the fact you can say that, uh, um, that they trod on our soil then gives you a connection there. And Southbury and Newtown played a huge role in helping get over the Housatonic River, which separates those towns. We did supply the bridge that allowed them to cross the river, which was huge because bridges, you know, the rivers were the big obstacles, especially when you got an army. Bob says there were a few rivers that had to be crossed. A ferry existed at Hartford to cross the Connecticut River, but it was Carlton Bridge that allowed passage over the Housatonic. That wooden bridge was sturdy, but it also collapsed the year after the campaign was over. You're talking about moving 5,000 soldiers and dozens of wagons full of provisions across such a structure. Bob says you needed to consider two different factors, though. Wagon train logistics and a bridge's carrying capacity. We don't know how much space was in between the different wagons. These wagons don't carry as heavy a load as we think because an ox or a horse can only pull so so much of a weight. Besides, he says, there weren't any great alternatives. Where is the nearest fort where you can cross? At going 10, 12 miles a day at most, suddenly you, you have a three-day detour. Time was of the essence. It was already late June 1781. The season to launch a military campaign was passing by. 
John Dwyer says the French troops stayed at Breakneck in Middlebury on the northeast side of Lake Quassapog and then headed for Newtown. The maps show them marching down uh, the east side of Quassapog, which is hardly a one-lane road now, if you know it. But if you do go that way ever, you'll see the remains of what they call Artillery Road, which is the route they took the artillery. And it's, it's not the way that we would go. Regarding the actual location of the Carlton Bridge, Nobody is absolutely a thousand percent certain where it was. However, John's conducted significant map and town record reviews, and he now feels quite confident that he knows the bridge was located almost precisely where the current Rochambeau Bridge today carries Interstate 84 over the Housatonic River. I figure, looking at the the remains of the hand-drawn bridges and the topography, uh, that it's probably down... Um, uh, what they call lakeside. Back then, Hinman's Ferry crossed the river at that location, near where the Veterans of Foreign Wars building is now on the Southbury shoreline. Once in Newtown, there's a famous local legend that some of the French troops took pot shots with their muskets at the Golden Rooster atop the town meeting house. It's at the intersection of Route 6 and Route 25, right near Newtown's famous flagpole. Well, Bob says that legend makes for good storytelling, but it's highly unlikely. I would be surprised if French forces had marched across Connecticut with loaded muskets. Bob says the only time soldiers were given gunpowder and balls for a live shooting exercise was months earlier, while the troops were still stationed in Rhode Island. All this is documented in military diaries that Bob has reviewed extensively. That's not to say the French didn't enjoy themselves a little bit in the time before the serious fighting was due to begin. And even Rochambeau says that now we're starting to march more militarily. Our dances at night as they're marching through Connecticut, all of that ends as we're coming closer to the enemy. And that's where we have to leave it for now. In part two, we're going to cover the unbelievably important strategic military decision that George Washington had to make by himself. If he got it right, the U.S. would be free. If he didn't, he'd be hanged by the British. And the problem for him, he didn't have all the information he truly needed to decide. That story in the next episode. That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path. I want to thank my guest for this episode, Dr. Bob Selig, the foremost expert on the Rochambeau March, and John Dwyer, town historian for the town of Southbury, Connecticut. Please follow me at my main podcast website, amazingtalesct.podbean.com. Also, in between episodes, you can check out my Facebook page at Amazing Tales CT. That's where I place photos supplementing my podcasts. Plus, I love hearing from you, and you can send me an idea of a story you'd like me to look into. If you liked what you heard, spread the word with your families and friends. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC.